I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. We don't turn to Zechariah every week here. It's on page 994 in most of those hymnals. And um, if you've got another page, um, just shout it out because Zechariah is kind of a hard one to find. So we're continuing the series of messages uh, looking at the vision statement of our church. And so, so far, um, this is how it begins. Creston Church is becoming an intentional community of disciples living in Christ all together with our neighbors to follow Jesus in every part of life. And today we're looking at the phrase, uh, all together. And Zechariah 8 is kind of our window into that, into that line. Zechariah chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty? This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is the word of the Lord. About two months ago, uh, it was July 31, to be specific. Social media accounts across the neighborhood lit up with the story of the decade here in Creston. According to what was, I am sure a rigorous, peer-reviewed, not-at-all-self-serving process. The hard-hitting investigative journalist team at Realtor.com broke the news that our little zip code, 49505, is the hottest zip code in America. Since then, I am sure, in a total coincidence, the realtors of this city have listed about half the houses on my street for sale, and all of them at about 10% more than what they would have been listed for on July 30. Now, the news of being so very hot uh, may not surprise some of our newer neighbors who've had to buy or rent here lately. Welcome, by the way. Um... But for those who've been around for a while, this article was honestly pretty shocking. When Lauren and I moved to this neighborhood in 2010, uh, I would have described our neighborhood as a scrappy neighborhood. Maybe a a working man's neighborhood. Uh, Maybe even a gritty neighborhood which were all kind of euphemisms for the same thing. I, I love this neighborhood, but, you know, we've got, we've got some issues. How many iterations of barbecue or hot dog or ice cream places have occupied Frosty Boy's location since we've been here, right? 
You guys remember Dizzy Dog? <laughs> you remember the Forest Garden Cafe? You'd blink and you'd miss it. Forest Garden. Then it was the Creston Deli. It was like the Forest Garden Cafe for like six weeks, and then the Creston Deli for six weeks, and then it was gone. You remember that coffee shop with the TVs that were blaring like 24 hours a day? What was that place called? Wired. Oh, man. In my time here in Creston, I have sometimes felt like being a booster of this neighborhood required a certain kind of determined blindness. I, I tried to keep like this sunny optimism, but it sure seemed like there was a lot of evidence that the glory days of this neighborhood were behind us. It often felt like other cities or other neighborhoods got all the attention. I think, I think we are used to in Creston sort of being an afterthought. We're kind of the forgotten neighborhood. And so it is an adjustment for us when Realtor.com tells us that we are not just alive, but we are so hot right now. Of course, I can't help but get back to kind of my cynical wondering from earlier. How exactly do you make a determination like that about the hotness of a neighborhood? Like, what are the data points, you know? Um, how do you know if a community has, has turned the corner from what I used to think of as Creston to what Realtor.com thinks of Creston. Like, how do you know if a community has a real bright future? I mean, I imagine Realtor.com, if they did any research at all, um, would have looked at things like new jobs or new construction. They would have looked at, like, the rising price of rents. or They would have made sure we had a brewery and a yoga studio, right? And they would have said, yes, like, Creston is definitely hot right now. Maybe that's a fine way to make a judgment call like that. But let's do a little thought experiment. We've done something like this before. Um, imagine that you are uh, a Johnny Azami. You're a 35-year-old high school teacher in Homs, Syria. Okay. So Homs is a city that's just a little bit bigger than Grand Rapids. You've got three small children. You've lived in Homs your whole life. I've been thinking about Azami for a little while now uh, because it was around that same time that Realtor.com came out with their article that the news broke that uh, the federal government announced the U.S. would be uh, resettling fewer refugees next year than at any time in modern U.S. history. Despite the fact that there's something like 65 million refugees in the world right now. To give you some perspective on the scale while the, the value of homes in this neighborhood have about doubled since 2010, which we think is quite remarkable, the number of refugees in the world in the same time span has tripled. It's tripled. So if you were a Zami or one of his relatives living in a refugee camp in Jordan or Greece, uh, how might you measure the health of your hometown? Like, how would you know if your neighborhood was hot? good question. Kind of a hard one for a zombie to answer right now, because most of his city block is in rubble at the moment. At the street outside his home is filled. Those are not potholes. Those are small craters left behind by mortar shells. And the wall of his children's bedroom has been patched up again 
after holes were left in it from stray gunfire. Homs is a war zone. And that means that Azami has a different set of questions than Realtor.com, doesn't he? If he wants to know if Homs is back, is vibrant, is strong, how's he going to know? I mean, uh, should he wait like for the brewery to move in? The yoga studio? Like, should he wait for like this glowing article in Realtor.sy? When your city is devastated by war, how will you know things have turned around? How will you know you have a future there? It's a very serious question that people all across Syria are asking. And now refugees from Syria all around the world are asking, right? When will we know there's a future back home? When will we know that Homs is alive again? I bring it up because... I think it's really the very same question that the Israelites were asking in our passage today. This is like 5th century B.C., and there they were. So they were supposed to be like God's chosen people, uh, but they were essentially refugees. The Bible calls them exiles, but today we'd call them refugees. About 70 years earlier, their hometown of Jerusalem, nicknamed Zion, had been sacked and overrun by the Babylonians. And as a consequence, they and their families had been shipped to the ancient version of a refugee camp on the outskirts of Babylon. In Babylon and later in Persia, they were like refugees today. They were a kind of underclass. They were unwanted, they were largely unemployable, and they were extremely vulnerable. And this exile had gone on for so long that many of God's people had begun to doubt this one sort of key promise of God about their situation. It was a promise from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had said that one day God would return and He would take them back from exile and that He would restore Jerusalem again. But there's nothing quite like a lifetime in exile to make a promise like that seem like really far away. And then, in this remarkable twist that nobody saw coming, the Persian king Cyrus agreed to send a group of Jews back to Jerusalem to have them rebuild the city. 50,000 of them went, hopeful, expectant, right? 70 years, that's a long time to look forward to something. But when they got there, it was even worse than they had feared. city was in ruins. Temple was in rubble. I mean, this sort of vibrant nation that their grandparents had been telling them about, I mean, it was long gone. That's kind of the context of our passage today. God's people are kind of standing there. They're looking at the wreckage of this homeland, and, and suddenly they are not at all confident that God could ever turn this thing around. I mean, they look at this, and they, they can see plainly with their eyes that there is no future here. And that's when God speaks again, this time through his prophet Zechariah. In chapter 8, God casts a vision of a restored city, a vision that that must have seemed impossible. So some of the images of the restored city are what we'd expect. So in verse 10, it talks about like being able to just walk around safely again. Verse 12 talks about the farms and the vineyards being fruitful again. Verse 18 talks about religious festivals just beginning again. But in verse 4, God gives what I think is the most vivid and the most surprising image of them all. 
It's the first sign, he says. The first sign that, as verse 3 says, God has returned to Zion and is dwelling in the city. This will be the first sign that the city has a future, that the city is alive again. Men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of the city with canes in hand. And while they sit, boys and girls will fill those streets with playing. That is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it's what, I think it's what we have always dreamed of for Spencer and Buffalo, right? Old folks sitting on the stoop, right, cracking jokes, complaining about the lions, right? But mostly, it's what you don't see, right? You don't see fear. You don't see violence. You see no police. You hear no gunshots, right? Meanwhile, the kids are playing a game of football in the street, and the kids are every shade of black, brown, and white, and they're jumping, and they're running, and they're laughing, and they're screaming, but there are no cars speeding by, parents having to yell at their kids to get out of the street. There's no drug deals on the corner. No one's playing with a gun. There's no trash. In Zechariah's prophecy, we see a city, a society, where things are so right, so vibrant, so alive, that even the most vulnerable members of society are in the middle of the action. Old and young together. And I believe that is what Azami is looking for again in Syria. Right? He wants to see what war zones almost never see. Right? In war zones, the only people you see on the streets are young, able-bodied men. There's no women. There's no children. There's no elderly. Right? A zombie wants to see kids playing again. He wants to see old folks laughing again. It was interesting. I was thinking about our own country. And we've experienced uh, really one of the longest periods of domestic peace of any nation in world history. Uh, we're in the midst of like historically low rates of crime. But even though we are not at all in a war zone, seeing this kind of interaction is pretty rare, like old and young together. More than maybe any culture I'm aware of in history, we, we tend to hide our elders from view. And, and we schedule our children like so intensively with clubs and teams with their peers that they might never have a chance to interact with a person over 70 who isn't their grandma. Churches are the same way, right? So the conventional wisdom among churches is that if you can, if you have the capacity, you ought to segment your church into like different worshiping communities. So the littlest kids are going to worship here in this building, and the slightly older kids are going to worship in that building, and the middle schoolers are going to worship here, and the high schoolers are going to worship there, and the college and singles group is going to worship over here. And each group is given an experience that is relevant and timely, a worship experience just for them. And so the middle schoolers don't have to put up with some preacher making all his examples about home prices and realtors, right? And the older folks, they don't have to ask what a Snapchat is, right? Every group gets their own program, spoken in their own language, their own church within a church. The kids get dropped off at 10, everyone goes to their respective services, everyone meets up again at 1130. And there's something about that that makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, I don't know if you noticed... Kids can be kind of distracting to grown-ups. I mean, not my kids, but like everybody else's kids can be really distracting to grown-ups. 
like they're squirrely and they're fidgety and, and some of them are kind of smelly and, and they tend to cry and need to go to the bathroom at like exactly the wrong time, like right when the preacher's really getting into it. That's when every kid in this church needs to go to the bathroom. Not to mention, right, every generation basically hates the way that the next generation is raising the next generation, right? Right? It drives them crazy. They're doing it all wrong. Like, why do they do it that way? So why don't you try to plan a worship service as much for the 5-year-old as the 15-year-old as the 50-year-old as the 80-year-old? I mean, you think the average 15, 50, and 85-year-old have remotely similar tastes in, like, music or style or culture? Now you understand the appeal, right? Why not just give the people what they want? Right? It's what our cultures learn to do. Each separate demographic group, like, worshiping with those who are like you. i got to tell you, it would be way easier. Of course, Zechariah has a very different vision of life in God's kingdom. In Zechariah, God says, When I make my home in your community, it will not just be a place for like the strong 20-something or the vibrant 30-something or the professional 40-something. When I make my home in your city, old and young, weak and strong, everybody will have a place. Everybody will be together. So in our church's vision statement, we say that we are a church living in Christ all together. And I think that is our way of expecting what Zechariah tells us to expect when God shows up. There is an intentionality in our church. As much as we can, we want to resist our culture's impulse to always segment and separate and keep every group comfortable. We believe the best community is a community not all split up, but a community that does as much as possible all together. No one is a token here. No one is merely tolerated here. Everybody belongs here. Everybody's expected here. Now, it is true that this church, at times, we separate. Just not very often. In fact, I would say as little as necessary. Now, can I just say again, be way easier to do it almost any other way. It would be so much easier to just, like, keep these groups distinct. And while we're at it, I don't know if you noticed, there are a lot of other groups that require a lot of work to get along. How much easier would it be to separate along political lines right now, right? What a relief that would be for many of us. Or income lines, or racial lines. I mean, don't kid yourself, it would be so much easier. But God says that when I'm in your community, you'll know because everyone will be together. This is a theme that comes up a lot in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, one of the most important passages in the Bible, talks about the importance of passing faith from generation to generation. The Gospels famously have multiple scenes of Jesus inviting the little children to come to him. I think one of the most beautiful and I'm sure one of the most challenging verses in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. And then he says this. It's one of the craziest things anybody has ever written. 
He says, no one can say to any other part of the body, I don't need you. It's not in a Christian's vocabulary. We cannot say, I don't need you. You know, we live in, I think, such a divided and, and fearful world. The generations are split up. Young and old have no meeting place. I think fear and boredom have basically just driven us all in hiding in front of our screens. But what if our church could be different? What if our church could be a place where the presence of God was so apparent that whether you liked the song or not didn't matter? Because you knew that there is something about singing a song you don't like that reminds you that the kingdom of God is much bigger than you or your tastes or your generation or your experience of the world. What if our church could be the kind of place where children could be children and old folks can be old folks and where we don't divide ourselves constantly into age-specific groups but where our most treasured time is the time when we are all in one place, worshiping together and eating together and playing together and some of us, I'm sure, crying together and some of us uh, needing to go to the bathroom together and some of us talking too loudly together, right? What of our church could be the kind of place where we were united not by our common phase of life or our common politics or our common culture, but where we were united by our uncommon bond in the Holy Spirit? my hope for this church. Life is too short to be spent in the presence only of your peers. God has a bigger vision for his people. If you only experience God through your own eyes or the eyes of your peers or the eyes of your own racial group or ethnic group, then your experience of God is too small. When we spend all of our time with people just like us, Sometimes it's like we have these blinders on. Uh, It's like our vision is stunted. Uh, We can only see the world from the lens of like a 30-year-old or an 80-year-old. That is not enough vision to see all that God is doing. Your individual perspective is not enough to appreciate all the ways that God is moving in this church or in this world. It's not even enough to see all the ways that God is moving in your own life. We need other eyes. We need each other. I believe God has been doing something special at Creston over the years. I think this work is hard. Um, I know it's, uh, it is uncomfortable, at least for me, much of the time. It can be inconvenient. I don't think we always get it right, but man, I am convinced that it's good. Because people of God, God's Spirit moves in this church, right? That's why we're here. We're here because God's Spirit moves in this church. If God's Spirit is not moving in this church, you should find a different church, right? God's Spirit moves in this church. That's why we're here. I can see it. I know many of you see it. But here's the thing. I can't see it all on my own. We can't see it all on our own. Because this, this is not just a church like for old folks. It's not just a church for young folks. It's not just a church for white folks or brown folks. Right? The kingdom of God is bigger than any of those categories. This is not a church for any particular demographic. This is a church for Jesus Christ, whose spirit is here right now, 
which means we need other eyes. We need each other to see all that he's doing. All right, let's pray together. Lord, uh, open our eyes. Help us to see that what you are doing is not confined to our relatively limited experience of the world. Uh, Our culture kind of reinforces this notion that we have to be the authority in all things going on and that our subjective experience of the world is, is the reality of this world. But Lord, your kingdom is so much bigger than that. So we pray, Lord, that you would open up our ears and open up our eyes to see that you are working bigger than this, that you would create spaces for us to be all together as a community, uh, and that in that, your, spirit, your Spirit's presence would be even more pronounced and even more evident, and that your work would be even more beautiful in our midst. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.